was on vacation in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley years ago, and we toured a huge cave system called Grand Caverns. We walked nearly a mile underground, visiting areas soldiers from both the north and south explored during the Civil War. In one of the larger rooms, deep under the earth, they turned off all the lights, and we were enveloped in a deep darkness. It's a place where no light seeps in at all. And even after letting your eyes adjust, we still were unable to see our hands right in front of our faces. The light soon returned and the tour continued, but imagine for a moment if you were there and something went wrong. The lights didn't come back on. This was a few years back. Everybody didn't carry around flashlights in their pockets. But your prepared guide was ready for such an emergency. So he came equipped with a lantern which he lights and he tells you all you have to do is follow him as he shines the light for you to see. What would you do? Would you gather with the other guests and try and determine your own way out? Would you stumble in the dark thinking that you alone know what is best? Or would you follow this guide who knows the way and is able to give you light? It seems like an easy choice, but it still requires faith and activity on your part. Because knowing there is light available does us no good unless we follow the light. Last time we were in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter wrote that he knew his life was nearly finished. He was likely writing from prison shortly before he was martyred. And he is seeking to make every effort. He states the purpose of why he is writing is to make every effort to ensure that the young church is able to thrive after his departure in the very challenging circumstances they faced. The gospel was gaining a foothold, but threats and persecution were also on the rise. Indeed, Peter himself was just months away from his own martyr's death. And this short letter contains his last recorded words. He recognized that there were many voices competing for attention in the present darkness of this world. And even among those professing to be believers and teachers, there were competing ideas and messages that were being proclaimed. False teachers were having adverse effects on the church. We're going to be looking more at that the next time we are in First Peter, or Second Peter. See, there's never been a time where there's been a shortage of people who want to tell us how we should think or act. So Peter appeals to his readers that above all, we pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, the light 
of God's word until the day dawns of Christ's return. Please read with me 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of his inevitable return. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As Peter prepares for his departure from this world, he wants all to know That though Jesus came humbly 30 years earlier, he is going to return with power to reign and judge all creation. In verse 16 he says, this is the message that he had made known to them. The coming and power of the Lord. But... In the 30 years since Jesus' ascension, many have begun to marginalize this message. The apostles were being martyred one by one, and still the Lord hadn't come back. Maybe the stories and promises of this Christ are are no different than the countless myths and fables of the numerous Greek and Roman gods their culture was familiar with. His glorious return and promised judgment were being chalked up as wishful thinking and religious myth, even by many claiming to be believers, claiming to be teachers. And at best, they say, that this This teaching was irrelevant to daily life. Now if that was a reason for concern in Peter's day, how much more for our own? How much are we looking forward to his return? Do we see the certainty of his coming judgment of him returning to set all things new it's been 2,000 years is it in the forefront of our minds or just something that might one day happen 
It was a big enough issue then that Peter thought it necessary to spend the bulk of this letter focusing on the reality of Christ's return and coming judgment. We will spend several weeks going through this as we continue through the book. With his remaining time and words, he's seeking to be as strategic as he knows how to be to equip the church for when he and the other apostles are gone. And Christ return to reign and judge. Oh, Peter's saying this should motivate all of us. Every one of our lives should be affected by this reality. So Peter begins to make his case by presenting two testimonies to this truth. Testimonies of the apostolic eyewitnesses and the prophetic scriptures. We're going to start with testimony number one. The apostolic eyewitnesses. Peter was there. He was there when Jesus shared all of those parables about the master who went away and then returned to reward or judge his servants. Or parables like the ten virgins where they were to be waiting and ready for the wedding feast. But all weren't prepared when the time came. He heard the stories, the teachings about unexpected returns and judgment for what was done with what was given in both time and talents. He knew such messages weren't just wishful thinking or moralistic tales, but they were divine revelation of the nature of Christ's kingdom. They contained warnings for any who would disregard his return. Peter was utterly convinced such revelations should profoundly affect the lives of Christ's disciples. He knew the difference between parables and fairy tales, wishful thinking and sober warnings. And his life had been shaped by faith in Jesus' promise to come again and to make all things right. And even as his friends were being killed, holding on to that promise, and he prepared to lose his own life, he held on to that promise. Eyewitness testimony is important. We need to know what the facts are from those who have seen it, but Peter and the other apostles, he declares here, were eyewitnesses to the majesty of Christ, honored and glorified, not just by them and their observations, but by the Father himself. When he was transfigured. Now, the transfiguration came at a time in Jesus' earthly ministry when he was talking, he's beginning to talk a lot about his coming death and resurrection, trying to make clear to his disciples the work that he came to do now, what he was seeking to accomplish. And he tried to impress on them that his pathway to glory had to travel through suffering and humiliation. 
Now as he shared that message with his disciples and those closest to him, well, it would be safe to say they didn't like that message. In fact, not only did they struggle with it, they, they were offended by the idea. This idea was so offensive that Peter himself rebuked Jesus for saying that he was going to be dying, that he would be killed, to which Jesus famously responded, get behind me, Satan. You don't know, you don't understand the mission that I've come to accomplish. Don't be a stumbling block for me in this thing that I have determined with God the Father must take place. And it was offensive enough that another disciple would soon betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver because he just wasn't shaping up to be the kind of Messiah Judas anticipated. Peter was one of three disciples there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Jesus' face shine like the sun. And he heard the Father's voice affirming the eternal Son, making it clear that there is no one like him. Not Moses or Elijah who were there with them on that mountain. As we just heard this morning, not an angel, no other man. There are none like him. He alone is the eternal Son of God. And Peter actually tried to give a suggestion about the significance of this moment. So he was observing Jesus talking with, with Moses and Elijah. And he was interrupted by the voice from heaven essentially telling him to be quiet. Which means that Jesus was verbally rebuked by both the Father and the Son within just a few verses. I imagine these are memories that stick with you. They make an impression because he was really there. He was a unique participant and first-hand observer of Christ's ministry and message. So his testimony and his teaching should carry some weight as he's reminding them what he has taught them about Christ returning and coming to judge, the power with which he will return. Yet, even as he reminds them of his own personal place in this story, what he has observed firsthand, the message he wants to leave to guide the church after his departure is not why aren't you listening to me? But that they have something even more sure than his own experience and testimony. They have the prophetic word. They have the scriptures. That's the second testimony. The prophetic scriptures. David Helm writes, it's as if Peter, 
on the verge of departing from this world, desires to lift up his voice one final time in an effort to declare to the church throughout all time, listen to me. I am an eyewitness to the saving acts of God in history. And I know that after Christ's death and resurrection, God will have no need to ever again perform these things in the presence of another generation. But remember, this in no way means that your faith is inferior to mine. We have both been given the prophetic promises of God. We can all read the words written down long ago. They are a more sure light than anything I ever saw or heard. Beloved, my seeing these things is important. Witnesses are essential, but God does not need to appear in the flesh every 40 or 50 years to enlighten us and confirm his love to us. In this way, seeing isn't essential to believing. Reading God's word is. This is a truth that Peter actually heard from Jesus himself again and again. In his battles with religious leaders, going back to what do the scriptures say, to his teaching, to the times after his resurrection when he opened their eyes to understand the scriptures. Do you remember the chilling exchange between Abraham and the recently deceased rich man in the parable Jesus told of Lazarus the beggar. The rich man wanted Abraham to send Lazarus to provide some comfort in his misery and torment in Hades. But Abraham said that wasn't possible. So the rich man responded in Luke 16, 27. Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let that sink in. The message Jesus is giving in this parable is that scripture contains all that is necessary, all that is essential for saving belief. To be honest, this offends many modern ears. Science is the God of our age. So we think we are excused from needing to believe anything we can't personally observe or replicate or indisputably verify. If God wants us to believe, then he should send us all an angel or a burning bush. But it is not without reason that Jesus says, 
even then they won't be convinced. We actually have the record of another Lazarus that really did rise from the dead. Whose story was one of miracle, not just parable. In John 11, we read about Mary and Martha's brother. In verse 41, it says, They took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus says and does what he does so that those watching and listening might believe. And some did. Hallelujah. But how unsettling is it that others who saw the exact same miraculous resurrection responded not with belief and faith, wonder and rejoicing, but used the same amazing experience as fuel for why Jesus must die. It wasn't that they didn't see the same thing. It wasn't that they never had the same opportunity to observe with their own eyes what Jesus could do or verify who he was as the one sent from God. They didn't even dispute the miracles and the signs. They were aware... They were multitudinous, yet they hardened their hearts and concluded not that he should be worshipped, but that he must be put to death. A man they were mourning five minutes ago walks out of his own grave and their immediate response was, looks like trouble. Better let the authorities know what just happened. Seeing doesn't guarantee believing. So what is faith to be based on? After his own resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples 
and he helped them understand. In Luke 24, he said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Said to them, this, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin shall be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses to what Scripture has promised. What generations have longed to look into, you have gotten to see and hear and observe in the flesh. And what you have seen and heard is not a different truth, but the fulfillment of what has been longed for since the garden. Since the curse was first proclaimed for sin, yet with it hope given that the seed of the woman would one day come and crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus says, you're witnesses to these things taking place. Not just promise, but in time and space and history. The reality that God became one of us and walked among us, sinless, and crucified for us, unable to remain in the bondage of death. He rose again and is now ascended and at the right hand of the Father. And you, he says, are witnesses to these things. When Thomas put his hands in Jesus' wounds, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Seeing is not essential for belief. Seeing is nice. But it doesn't guarantee belief. Two verses later, John writes, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Peter opened his letter stating that our faith has an equal standing with his and the other apostles. Because our faith is based on the same person. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, the faith of those who walked with him is not superior to our faith. Because of who our faith is in. The apostles had a unique role in redemptive history but we are not at a disadvantage 
following in their footsteps. Our relationship with God is not lesser than those that walked with Jesus. As his departure neared, Peter knows the health of the church is not dependent on every generation having the same experience, but each one embracing the same Savior-revealing scriptures. Because the scriptures are not myth or legend or inspiring personal testimonies, but spoken from God and carried along by the Holy Spirit that we might have life in his name. So what are we to do with the testimony of the apostles and the prophets? Well, Peter says we're to pay attention to them as to a lamp shining in a dark place. When all else is noise or all else fails, where all else is darkness, these testimonies are to shine the way for us. They are to illumine who He is and what He has done. They are to be our life and our guide. Washington, Hollywood, Facebook, talk radio, there is no end to those who would seek to convince us of what we should believe and value. And into this present darkness, Peter shines the light of the prophetic scriptures, as highlighted by the Father himself at the transfiguration. Jesus is not one of many options. He is the one and only Son of God. Scripture testifies he will return in power to rule and reign and judge the living and the dead. We have passages like Psalm 2 that seem to be referring directly to the transfiguration when it proclaims, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here, like each of Jesus' parables about the kingdom, there are two groups. Those for whom the master's appearing is a blessing and those for whom it means judgment. Peter's testimony should be heeded, for he was an eyewitness to the promises fulfilled. But there is plenty in the rest of Scripture to confirm all that he saw and heard and declared. 
So none are without an excuse. Be warned, all inhabitants of the earth, only those who take refuge in the Son will be blessed. We must treasure and follow the light of God's word until the dawn of Christ's return outshines all else. As Peter said, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, we must treasure what we've received in his word as we eagerly long for his glorious return. Before Colleen and I were married, I had a job working evenings at the local hospital in the college town where we met. After graduation, she moved back home a couple hours away and was working a day job there. We didn't have cell phones. This was a little while ago. Texting wasn't a thing. We didn't even have email yet. We did have access to our parents' phones home, which charged extra for long distance. But working different shifts meant that even calls were rare and only about once a week or so. Our main communication during that season was handwritten letters and cards, which for those who are unfamiliar with the medium were great because they were personal. They didn't arrive immediately, but they were personal from the expressions of love contained within them to the handwriting that these notes were written in. Plus, they were something you could keep going back to, you could hold on to and remind yourself of all these wonderful things that they contained. They were relational lifelines when other options were sparse. Treasured messages of affection and commitment and our desired future. Of course, on the weekends that I wasn't working, I traveled, drove down so that we could be together. And as wonderful and cherished as those letters were, You want to know one thing I wasn't doing when we were together? I didn't spend a single moment reading them. Not then, because being with the one who wrote those letters was so much better. Scripture is essential now. But it is ultimately just a placeholder. Scripture communicates God's love and commitment and provides light for us today. But the day is coming when we will be with Jesus face to face, which will be better by far. The waiting will be over and our desired future will be realized. Faith and hope will no longer be necessary because we will be in his loving presence forevermore. 
never again to be parted from him. And just as the light of the lamp fails to compare with the flooding, overwhelming light of the sun, what we have now will dim and not compare to what we receive in him on that day. Yes, make Scripture's testimony of Jesus your guide and your treasure now. It's what we have until he returns. Let us kiss the Son. Embrace who he is and what he has done for us so that we are ready to welcome him and not regret the dawn of the coming of the Son. Let's pray together if the band could come.